Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. This is episode number 68, 68. So I want to let you know I still kind of have allergies, so if I sound uh, a little rocky, you know, it's any part of this podcast, uh, please just cut me some slack because I do, uh, my sinuses drain and, and I get all, you know, just all wonky with it, so... Anyway, there's no coronavirus, though, because I've been wearing my mask and keeping my six feet and doing all that stuff. So, I want to keep it light on politics. I really do, because I realize you see a lot of that. A lot of us teleworking from home and things see a lot of that and a lot of the coronavirus. That's why I kind of stopped talking about that. That's kind of all done. But just to hit, hit one note, you know, Joe Biden said, my running mate is going to be a woman. Okay, well, I guess that was something to say, but what he did was he put himself in an awful box. Um, the one that probably could have done him the most good, who is this uh, Whitmer from Michigan, because Michigan's a big state, and if you start winning up there, you get a favorite son candidate from up there, you know, could kind of could kind of uh, tip the scales in the electoral vote column. But she's self-destructing. I mean, she's acting like an ass, overreaching. And, and frankly, I think she's ending her political career. So she's done. She's kind of out of the picture. The ones that have kind of stated that they're in the picture, um, either by words or by actions, are Warren Harris and this Stacey Abrams, the one, from, the one who lost the Georgia gubernatorial event, or uh, election, I should say. And, you know, she's, she's a wacko. We'll get to her. But, you know, Harris has got real problems. First of all, she was a terrible candidate. And she's not, she does not fit into the good political calculus of she's going to come from a state that will help Biden. Biden's going to win California anyway. So she does not help him in the electoral college vote total. The other thing is she's an idiot. I mean, she ran a horrible campaign. She was effectively poll-axed by Tulsi Gabbard during the Democratic debate where she said, hey, on Howard Stern, you admitted to smoking smoking pot, yet you're putting people in jail for the same thing. Which leads you to the other problem with Harris, which is she's a prosecutor. And so all of her minority credentials are essentially wiped out by the fact she was a prosecutor. Prosecutors are not liked in certain communities because the justice system is seen as unfair, so she's a very bad candidate on three counts. She's an idiot. She comes from a state that won't help Biden because he's going to win it anyway. And she's a prosecutor, so she's actually got the potential to turn off more voters than she could turn on because of, of her race and gender. So Harris is a horrible pick. Now that does not mean that Joe will not make a horrible decision because that's what Joe does. But anyway, uh, so Sleepy Joe, his next, the next one up is Elizabeth Warren, who, again, she does not come from a state which is going to help Biden because he's going to win Massachusetts anyway. Number two, she's kind of closer to Bernie. So she, the theory with her is she could bring in some of the Bernie bros, you know, the, the, the really left-wing people that are not enthusiastic about Biden. I don't think that's really much of a factor, but her debit is... She's a miserable person and a miserable candidate. I mean, she makes Hillary Clinton look likable. So why would anybody be attracted to her campaign? And you saw during the primary, nobody really was. She's the nasty third grade, condescending third grade teacher nobody likes. So, you know, that's that's it. Uh, I suppose he could go for Klobuchar, a non-entity. That doesn't help him at all. I mean... She, she basically spun out. I mean, she just is, is nothing. She doesn't inspire, doesn't have anything. So he's worked himself into quite a pickle because, frankly, even somebody from a state that isn't going to help him electorally, like a Cuomo, would have been a much better pick. Somebody nationally, got national known, kind of that whole, a lot more famous and a lot, probably a lot better politician, a more skilled politician. But unless he's willing to do a 180, that's all off the table. So good luck, Joe. I think you're really in a uh, uh, problem right now. That brings us really quickly to the Flynn case. I mean, you couldn't write 
a novel or a TV script or a movie script where, you know, all these basically politicized officials try to frame a guy, yet that's what happened. And uh, he is going to walk, and, and believe you me, there will be something to pay because they, they financially ruined the guy, and now they're sitting there, um, you know, it's obviously that they did an incredible disservice. But you couldn't write something like that. The corruption, the absolute greed, avarice, and just power-mad uh, attitudes of these people who were leaving the Obama administration, maybe even up to Obama himself. I, don't, I think he'll remain clean because he's an expert at that, but I think it's just absolutely awful that he has... Uh, that's the waning days of his administration. We're just trying to frame an innocent man. How, that's despicable. And that kind of leads me into something that uh, that I've kind of thought about. People kind of always, it, it's not really a direct question, but it's something that's a topic that gets discussed. And that is, what is the, what is the biggest problem facing the nation? What is the most critical, critical issue? And I would say, you know, you, you can talk about a whole lot of things. But one of the things I think that nobody talks about, because it's too scary of a possibility, and it's a worst case scenario, military planners, what's the most likely thing that can happen, what's the uh, worst thing that can happen, and this may be the worst thing, maybe not the most likely, but I believe the U.S. military is on an implosion course that will culminate in about a decade. And the reason I say that is, there's, there, well, there's several reasons why I say that. The first reason is we're really paying the price by having general or flag officers, generals and admirals, who've been brought up in a very corporate mentality of, I gotta get ahead. They don't think about, they say they do, but they don't think about their troops. They don't think about anything except getting themselves furthered. Because they're in an environment where if you make a single mistake, or if you don't look out for yourself and aren't ruthless about it, uh, somebody, somebody else will 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 get you and and put the sword to your career. So, you know, maybe maybe they're not individually to blame for that, but that's the environment that they're in. <clears throat> the next thing I think is the fact that we have, after the two thousand election, and and even kind of before that, uh, the military was seen as a bulwark of conservative values. And since that time, people have attacked things like, well, why do we have chaplains? So the military running around trying to find Muslim and Buddhist chaplains to try to try to make it look a little more diverse and equal. But the fact of the matter is most of the chaplains are Christian chaplains. And it's a religious, it's a religious position in a state-run organization because that's just what it requires. So that's been under attack. The other thing that is, is the LGBT community has felt there's been a lot of discrimination because you can't, at, for, for many, many years, you could not be LGBT and be in the military. That you, you couldn't do that. And since we've now said you can, I think it has enticed a number of these kind of individuals come in and there's, there's, going, to be, there's going to be a price to be paid in morale. And that is especially going to be evident when transgenders, transsexuals, whatever you want to call them, become more commonplace in the military. That's going to be a real problem. And that's a problem in the military. It's, it's a social problem. The military should not be the petri dish to try out potential solutions. And the very last thing has been the expansion of the roles of females. Females have become in, it's now they're pushing to get them into every single MOS. And we're not just talking about, you know, flying Black Hawk helicopters or other things. We're talking infantry, armor, special operations, uh, special forces and rangers. And I mean, there has been a concerted push to get them through the appropriate schools that would qualify them to do that, even to the point where those schools have compromised their standards. So there are a lot of guys walking around who got bounced from either Ranger School or the Army Special Forces 
selection and or Q course who, uh, if they were tested under the same standards as these females, would have would have been through the course. That just That's just the truth of it. The other truth of it is men and women are not equal. And this all is presupposed on the fact that everyone is equal and everyone can do equally well. Well, if that were true, and especially when you look at very physical jobs like infantry, armor, cannon, artillery, special operations, things where, you know, your life could hang on the balance of whether the fact you can climb a rope fast enough. Not just climb a rope, but do it fast enough. Or run, you know, the Mogadishu Mile, okay? Um, Think about the Mogadishu Mile and the fact that for, for years the military had two different standards, one for males, one for females. Well, when you're running the Mogadishu Mile, trying to just physically run from the bad guys, uh, there is no there is no differential there. There is no there is no getting a break for being slower, and that is that is where we are. If men and women were physically equal, and I always say this, where are the women in the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, professional hockey? Where are they? And and the answer is they're not because men and women are not equal. It just it's just that simple. Very few women are even. Uh, you know, every once in a while there's one here and there in professional racing because that's very physical and very demanding, uh, just just brute strength demanding also, can be. So, you know, they're, they're not equal, and to pretend they are and to open up every job classification, and to be against that sounds misogynistic, but I think it's just practical, and I think at a certain point we will pay a price. There will be a price to be paid, we'll pay it in lives, and then we'll also wind up paying it in uh, in capability too. There's just a capability gap. The other the other thing is females are much more likely to get injured. I've heard the statistic I've heard is basically at least thirty to forty percent more likely to become injured. And they also have lower retention rates. And especially when you look at something like infantry, a lot of men, a lot of men don't want to be in the infantry. So you know that somebody who gets sold on the idea of being in the infantry, um, a female might say, oh my God, what have I done to myself? This is, this is horrible. And so the, the success stories they're going to have are, are, are very poor. And they've already had the inappropriate relationship and all the other kind of things that have happened in the infantry with all this. It's it's there are certain times and certain places, like if I'm born without without legs, okay, I can't serve in the U.S. military. Not because I'm a bad person, but because I have a physical limitating or limiting condition that is something that they don't want. They they can't make accommodation for me with no legs, and that's why I always felt lucky that I did serve in the military and why I always felt it was an honor and a privilege because I was physically and mentally able to do so. But there are a lot of people in society who cannot serve in the military due to certain things. <clears throat> and you can't, you really can't list them all, but, you know, any any recruiter can probably explain them to you. Any, everything from criminal records to, to this, that, and the other thing. And while females in the military is not a bad idea, and in some cases it's a very good idea, it needs to be tempered with common sense and reasonable limits and an honest appraisal of what's best for the force. And, uh, you know, a lot of the integration of females has been supported by the aforementioned general officer class that, A, is trying to curry favor with politicians, and there's also a group of people inside the military that, for selfish reasons like having available females around and you know that's a very very bad deal either think about how many of these scandals have happened and you know that's because you put boys and girls together in a certain environment and that's what's going to happen and everybody from privates to general officers have been affected by that and maybe maybe we need to put in some artificial engineering of separating genders to a greater degree than what we're doing now so that these sort of things just don't happen. Anyway, that's the biggest problem coming to the coming to the nation is 
the fact that uh, our military is going to have a serious morale and performance and capability problem, and you're seeing it. Look at the look at the uh, accidents that have been in the Navy for the last couple of years. You know, ships hitting things that they never should have hit. That whole debacle on the Roosevelt. You know, there's a lot of signs that are out there now that maybe we're not heading in the right direction for a lot of different reasons and in a lot of different ways. Hey, another issue that's uh, kind of come up and is very interesting is what I call the lost art of the auto rifle. Automatic rifles. And you don't hear that term anymore. Uh, you first started hearing it, it came out 100 years ago in World War I. The infamous Chauche, or Shosho, was really an automatic rifle. It was not a light machine gun. Same thing with the BAR. And this is why listening to CN Arsenal and even forgotten weapons and even uh, in-range TV is so dangerous because they don't get it. They have never been infantrymen, so they don't understand there is a difference. Not that every single infantryman would know the difference, but... For years, with the M16A1, if you, <laughs> the, the uh, table of organization in an infantry squad had two guys, and they were supposed to have a bipod that they put on their M16A1, and they were auto riflemen. Their job was to click onto full auto and fire three-shot bursts and suppress targets and hit targets and, and do all that. That was exclusive of if your squad had a machine gun in it or not. You had automatic riflemen. And uh, there was one in each fire team, and fire teams would maneuver, cover and maneuver. Um, so there, you know, there was, up until kind of recently, the uh, the idea of the automatic rifle. The BAR was an automatic rifle. It was never meant to be a light machine gun. And and I would say that I don't know anybody's ever really designed a true light machine gun. The Lewis gun, I think, was a light machine gun for its day. Uh, but it's it's really kind of the in the same I believe the same weight category as a as an FN M two forty is now you know it's there there's kind of medium machine guns there's a few heavy machine guns left like the Browning fifty caliber and the Soviet twelve point seven and fourteen point fives but the um, there's a very actually very few heavy machine guns left. There's very few light machine guns. You could argue the squad automatic weapon M249 is a light machine gun. I would say that's probably true. It feeds from a belt. It's it's light, very much a light machine gun, more so than an automatic rifle. Pretty rare, though. Not a lot of countries use them. And uh, then there are automatic rifles. And uh, I think a lot of times when the full auto, cap full auto capability of an military rifle is looked at, they kind of real, don't realize that this thing was supposed to have the capability to be an automatic rifle. And the, you know, the pistol grip stock M14, known as the M15, that was supposed to be one. Uh, the heavy FN, FAL, heavy barrel was supposed to be one. So there, these things have been out there. And I would even argue today, the RPK is an auto rifle. It's not a light machine gun. The RPK is an automatic rifle. And, you know, the Soviets essentially got it right. Uh, it puts out a high volume of fire when and where you need it. It can help a squad. It can suppress and help a squad maneuver. But it's light enough so that it's going to go everywhere. And it's managed by one man. And I think that's kind of the hallmark of the auto rifle is... It's kind of managed by one man, and in many ways, in some most cases, it's the same design as the standard infantry rifles are using. So there's been a lost art of the auto rifle, and uh, you know it's more important historically than I think in modern um, talking about modern military operations in combat. But they've lost that when they're talking about the historical context of things like the Shosho and the BAR and. You know some of these other some of these other weapons, the heavy barrel FNFAL. They're not just crummy light machine guns or light machine guns that followed a wrong design path because they followed the military rifle path. No, they were designed for something else, and it's really become a lost art. I don't even know. I suppose I could look to see if modern infantry squads even have the automatic riflemen anymore. I doubt they do. I think they have the squad automatic riflemen 
with the M249 and maybe a machine gunner with a with an M240, but and in the past I was an M60. So, you know, I, it is there is a lost art there, and uh, I think the only place where you know the place where you could really see it was during the old national matches where they had the rattle battle deal where they had the guys and sometimes they would use BARs in those uh, what they do nowadays I'm, I'm not sure if they even do that anymore I'm, I'm not a big national match guy so I don't really know what they still do but they used to have the the infantry rattle battle and an integral part of that was a BAR so there you go that's the lost art of the auto rifle and it's something we should probably look at again especially when they're talking about um, low intensity very infantry centric special operations centric type of combat where you're you're close and you're fighting with your enemy and you're not using a lot of your supporting arms uh, something that should be looked at and definitely uh, re-examined okay let's get to the most interesting part of this podcast which is the questions and answers my favorite part of this and so our first question, it's actually a two-part question. So the first two questions are kind of related. And we actually kind of talked about this a little bit before, but I think it's fun to kind of go after it, see if, see if it's changed any. What is the most overrated military rifle? Okay, for me, that's a very easy question to answer. The 1903 Springfield. And the reason I say that is there's nothing wrong with the Springfield. In many ways, it's a, it's a great rifle, and maybe one of the best bolt actions ever made, maybe even the best. But it's overrated because the Springfield's War, if you will, which was World War I, the Springfield only equipped about 25% of the U.S. troops in Europe, the AEF. Why is that? Well, we could, just couldn't make enough of them, and we had to adopt a British design and modify it, and chamber it in 30-06 so that we could have enough rifles to give to the doughboys who were going over there. So, right then and there, that tells me it's an overrated rifle. It, it, it's not the quintessential rifle from World War One. It was really almost a substitute standard. I mean, couldn't produce enough of them. So, it really wasn't the great factor, but he thought it would be. And what should have been the rebirth of it, which would have been a disaster, which was the Mark One, which was modified for the Pedersen device, never really took off. They produced some of the rifles, but the war was over by the time those things got released, and on and on. But the the and by the time World War Two comes around, the Springfield is long in the tooth. It's been replaced by the M1 rifle. And basically, the O3A3, which is the Walmart, <laughs> the Walmart version of the uh, Springfield rifle, with simplified st- sights and stamped parts and everything else, cheaped out in every way. Still a good rifle, but cheaped out. You got to admit it. Um, it was basically a substitute rifle used for grenade launching, some sniping. You know, a few things. A few. It had a few missions, but it was not a primary infantry rifle. I think beyond. The Marines landing at Guadalcanal, I don't think hardly anyone used. I don't think any formations were just standard equipped with um, with Springfield rifles. They, they might be here and there and, and providing this, that, and the other thing, the grenade launching, the sniping, or, or, or around, but they were never the, the main rifle of the... Uh, of large combat formations. So, Springfield rifle, most overrated rifle that there is. Uh, a related question to that is why wasn't the 1917 retained as the primary infantry rifle after World War One? The answer to that is, is a little more complex, but to bulletize it and make it simple, it was made in civilian factories, which the War Department did not like, because that all of a sudden put them at the uh, um, put them at the hands under the hands of civilian laborers, strikes, and all this other thing. So they basically uh, um, did not want to be a part of any of that kind of stuff. The next thing was the British owed us a lot of money, and this was their design, and during the war they never said anything. But after the war, when we're collecting money from them, they might have tried to use that as a leverage or bargaining chip, saying, well, you, you know, if we owe you for this, you also owe us for using our design and, and retaining it after the war. 
So for a couple, and the third and least reason was they, they tried to use it in the national matches and it wasn't very popular because the sight, the rear sight, is not windage adjustable. So in the game that is service rifle shooting in the national matches, a windage adjustable rear sight is almost a requirement. So for those three reasons, the third reason really being the least important, uh, it was not kept. What is the most underrated military rifle? That very same 1917, which, which uh, we've talked about a lot before. You know, in-range TV has talked about them too. It basically says it's the best military bolt action ever. And maybe right, you know, maybe right. Uh, but it, the reason it's the most underrated is it never gets mentioned before the Springfield, even though it equipped three quarters of the American Expeditionary Force during World War One. So it is the most underrated military rifle. Okay, next question. Very interesting, very interesting question. With all the talk of lever guns, and it's been, you know, through different medias, you know, through the through different YouTube channels, they all, they all kind of touch on lever guns at some point. Was the 3030 Winchester, or 30 caliber Winchester Centerfire, same cartridge, the first intermediate cartridge because it performs like the 762 by 39 that that is a very interesting question i would have to look at it and say yes it, it does basically it outperforms the uh with a similar similar weight bullet it gets about 100 feet per second more than 762 by 39 so it's you know it's kind of in that same power class you know not not tremendously different however it's more often used with 150 or 175 grain bullets and not a 125 or 130 grain bullet as you would see in the uh, in the 7.62 by 39. The other thing is intermediate cartridge is a modern construct and the evolution of cartridges and guns and, and things in the late 19th century were was such that if you wanted a repeater, a gun that could hold more than one shot, uh, you essentially got a what we would now term is a pistol caliber carbine. You know, you got a Winchester 66, later a 73, and much later a 92, and those were in pistol caliber rounds. Same rounds you could use in your Colt um, six gun. Okay, that was just that was what it was. If a repeater shot those. A little later, 1876 and 1886, Winchester came out with lever action guns that could hold much more powerful cartridges uh, culminating with a 4570 and I think there was actually even a 50 caliber one they used in the uh, 86 so you know if you if you wanted you had then those two options you had the pistol caliber carbine or the larger more robust and with much less capacity as far as holding ammunition goes lever gun so you you had those uh, the 3030 kind of came out, and it introduced not only 30 caliber small bore smokeless powder in the Winchester 3030, and also the 32 Special, which is very similar. So then, you by 1910, you really did have you really did have a wide array of Winchester rifles that, depending on what you wanted to use them for, you could still get the pistol caliber carbines in. The guys of the 1873 and the 1892, you could get the moderately powerful cartridges of the 32 Winchester Special and the uh, 3030 in a Winchester 94, and you could get more powerful cartridges in the 1886 and the Winchester 95, depending on uh, uh, whether you wanted to go kind of big and smoke, big and black powder, or smaller and more powerful but smokeless, so they had this wide range of cartridges, and and on the peripheral they had some cartridges that kind of defy description. Three fifty one Winchester, four hundred one Winchester, were kind of out there, really not powerful enough to be what we would consider an intermediate cartridge today, but certainly more powerful than the pistol kind kind of cartridges that they were that were previously uh, chambered in rifles. So, you know, you had that. It, and to to think, to try to frame historical guns with modern 
theories and context really can get confusing. It's just the way to know it is, it's not an intermediate cartridge, the 3030. It is a cartridge that was in the spectrum of Winchester cartridges that was neither the least powerful or neither the most powerful. And uh, so that's kind of the way to look at it. If you want to call it intermediate, it's fine. But it doesn't have any other... An intermediate cartridge is really something that was designed for semi-automatic, high-capacity weapons, and that is not a 3030. Um, it just doesn't have the capacity. It doesn't have it. But it has a, a similar but not identical... Um, ballistic envelope. So there you go. The 3030 is not really an intermediate cartridge. It was simply one of the the spectrum of cartridges that Winchester offered from light to heavy. Okay. Did you see Forgotten Weapons video on the Scout Rifle Study? And what did you think? Okay, I have to tell you, I saw it. And I think they, they, he hit it pretty much on the head. You know, I, I would have characterized it a little differently, but the, the scout rifle is an obsolete concept that has, I don't know, I'm not even sure it was ever a really hugely viable, viable thing. I'm not sure it was ever the great, the great panacea for riflemen that it was ever supposed to be. And there's a whole variety of reasons for that. It's First of all, what they never talk about, and I don't know if this new book does or not, and I'm not really willing to pay 45 bucks to buy it to find out, but um, the, the scout rifle always had this kind of tactical, this veiled tactical use. I remember one of Cooper's columns at the time was talking about well, you know, this would be a great rifle for a point man. And I'm like, a bolt-action rifle is never any kind of a good weapon for a point man. And this was back in the M16A1 era, you know. So, um, you know, you got to realize who Cooper was and what influenced him. And the guy was born in 1920 and died in 2006. So he can't defend his theories now, even if he were still around. He'd, he'd be 100 and probably not not as adroit mentally to uh, defend his, his, his deal. So this is, again, a you know kind of an after-the-fact. But when he grew up, there was uh, still a lot of stories and a lot of influence about people could go to Africa and you could wander around there and kind of shoot whatever you wanted to. You know, in the 20s and 30s, you could still do that. And uh, so, therefore, an all-around rifle would have some appeal, something that could bring down African game, and also you could shoot the planes game, and, and you know, shoot the funny-looking little antelopes, and, and other things that got the strange horns, And but if you got jumped by a Cape Buffalo, you could deal with that too. Okay, there was a certain appeal to that, I suppose. Nowadays, everybody selects the best available tool for the specific task they're doing. If I'm hunting planes game, I'm not going to take a 416 Rigby. I'm just not probably take a 270 Winchester or a 7mm Magnum or something. If I'm hunting Cape Buffalo, I'm not going to take the 270 Winchester. I'm going to take the 416 Rigby. So I'm going to use the gun that I need to use. The next the next uh, problem with that is, and I won't even go into the tactical reasons why a bolt-action rifle is, is unsuitable for any kind of military use. It just is... But it was not in Cooper's youth. I mean, the, the 1903 Springfield, even though we just talked about how overrated it was, it was a very, very legendary rifle. And, you know, bolt-action rifles, the man with the bolt-action, you know. And there's story after story of, of all these guys that they, these gun writers lionized back then. You know, that single man with his super-accurate bolt-action, you know, wreaking havoc on the enemy. Um, the bolt-action rifle was not looked upon as something that was obsolete or archaic. It was it was simply kind of a standard to them, even after it had been eclipsed by rifles like the M1, the M14, and, and later the M16, which was an anathema to them because they hated the M16 because of its caliber. Then you come down to the practical, the, the practical application of the scout rifle, which is 
they set out all these criterions and you know as far as weight does it need a scope does it you know all this other stuff caliber weight overall length if you try to get a rifle that fits in that envelope you wind up with a very light rifle that's going to have some brutal recoil and um you know that's fine for most people who are out hiking and, and doing a lot of this kind of stuff fire the rifle once or twice hunting that's okay but there's the market is saturated well maybe not saturated but there's certainly plenty of choices in light mountain rifles that use you know titanium and and uh carbon fiber stocks and a whole lot of things or even you know barrels that are a, um, a hardened steel liner and wrapped in in carbon fiber fiber you know to make them lightweight so you can get a lightweight hunting rifle much easier now than you could back in the 60s and 70s when when cooper was formulating all this you can also get the scout scope was kind of kind of a neat innovation at the time people thought it was pretty cool and uh you know you you could keep some situational awareness around you you weren't i think the biggest the biggest advantage of it was you weren't all of a sudden looking through a scope and then all of a sudden like where's the where's the game because now i've lost it and then you had to reacquire the game animal you could kind of basically see it bring it up and and uh, then your eye could focus through this long eye relief scope and, and get it. I think that was that was the real advantage. For every other reason, it, it, it basically sucks because it's out there, it's exposed, and, you know, it, it can get hammered. And we all know what happens when scopes hit rocks and other things, even the great scopes we have today. So I, I disagree that... Uh, um, you know that the, the scope was all that great and his original specifications cooper's original specifications were didn't even include the scope that was an optional deal it had to have iron sights of course and one of the things they wanted was that it could you could load it <laughs> with with magazine charger clips which we call stripper clips you know i mean yeah awesome and uh you know on and on so when you look at the original specifications of a scout rifle and, and in fact he thought the number five jungle carbine was very close to the scout rifle in concept. the The thing he didn't like was the three hundred three caliber cartridge wasn't as easy to get. He wasn't really that revved on the end field, and on and on. But but that basically met a lot of the criterion of the scout rifle. Especially if you throw the scope out, it's it's right in there, um, power wise and size wise and everything else. Uh, you know, there's really nothing a scout rifle will do that my bargain basement Remington 700 ADL will not do. You know, it's 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 got backup iron sights. Never used them, but it's it's got a traditional scope and all that. You know, and that's that's really it's it's a good deal. I mean, it is capable of doing everything a scout rifle can do. So. You know, why would you spend four, five, six, ten times the money to get something that's a little more, that's really the biggest difference was the uh, forward-mounted scope. And, you know, what? you can get that now on anything. I mean, the, the thing that's really killed the scout rifle has been the fact that, A, not everybody goes to Africa, so the power the power requirements are a little different. And so if you, if you sit there and say, I don't need something that's going to take down you know a large game animal all of a sudden then the scout rifle becomes extremely irrelevant because you can get an AR in 556 flat top put ever put all kinds of scope and goodies on it you know a three power a three power magnifier with an EOTech is a brilliant solution and it also helps a lot better in low light and everything else you know, there's all these all these things. And you can even get 7.62 NATO or 6.5 Creedmoor AR-10 style rifles. You know, and that's, that's, that's basically, to my mind, push the scout rifle off the, just off the radar. So, the scout rifle is a, an interesting niche in history, but it really isn't that interesting. Now, if, if you want to go hunt in Africa... You know, you need an African rifle for the game you're going after. And that normally cannot be a semi-automatic. I think that has to be kind of manually operated. So there you go, you know, if you really want one. Um, 
that's that would be about the best idea but I still don't like that forward mounted scope because you know when you're climbing around the last thing you want to do <laughs> is be climbing around on some rocks or something and oops oh the uh, scope slips off your shoulder or the rifle slips off your shoulder and crunch now the scope is unserviceable you know that's 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 a big deal if that's if that's the big selling point of the rifle and the only one that's really a distinguishing characteristic was the forward mounted scope well that's that's not that great so I, I think it's a goner I think it's been a goner for a long long time and that's why you just don't see them I mean I, I a couple of companies have put them out and everybody rushes to you know everybody thought it was so cool you know the Ruger Scout rifle and you know, as it turns out, it's a nine hundred. It's the best thousand dollar, four hundred rifle, four hundred dollar rifle made. So, I think you can easily go with something something else and get just the same capability, and uh, and go for it. And a lot of these guys who who really uh, well, these guys can do the, all these great feats of marksmanship and everything. Well, if they just practice with their other rifles, they can do the same thing. I mean. Um, if you have a scout rifle and you practice with it a lot, you're probably going to be pretty good with it. If you don't practice with it, you're probably not going to be as better as any better with that than you are with anything else. So that's my thing on the scout rifle. I think it's always been a uh, it's always been a red herring. And and while Cooper had a lot of great ideas, you know, a couple of his ideas weren't so good. The Bren 10 wasn't a good idea. The scout rifle it may have had some merit in its day. But its its day is long, long past, and other other rifles clearly surpass it to the point where it's really a footnote. And uh, I, you know, you just don't see them. I, you just don't see them. I don't see them at ranges, and I don't see them in gun stores. Really, you know, a big place like Cabela's might have one in stock. You know, and uh, there you go. You know, it's so it's it's not as big a deal as you think. It probably wasn't even worth doing the video on, is, is what I'm thinking. Okay, here's the next question is, what is the piece of kit that represents the best value that you've discovered? And I'd have to say there's a whole lot of, a whole lot of things. But the latest one, the one that really jumps to the front of my mind is... Um, I had a Ruger, one of the original Ruger PC-9 carbines. You know, nice nice gun, nice little gun. Never really used it much. It always just kind of sat in the back. And I used it a little bit here and there, but not much. And part of the reason I never really used it that much was I never care, cared for the open sights. Um, they were a little hard to acquire. They just didn't, just didn't do much. So I decided I would put some sort of an optical sight on it. Even though I'm predominantly an iron sight guy, and I believe iron sights are actually better, it, it really was just I put it on to become a range toy. So I got the little adapter so I could put the uh, the little rail scope mount on top of the thing. The new Ruger PC carbines come with that that already on there. I don't know if it's a separate piece or if it's molded into the receiver, but they come with that on there already, which is nice because they can mount these things a little bit lower. But anyway, I put this thing on, and then I put on a True Glow dot sight. And it's got a green dot or a red dot. And this thing is only like a $60 sight. I mean, it. Um, I think at Cabela's it was $65 or something. You know, I, I have to tell you that that is a very good little sight. And I haven't used it a whole lot, but I've taken it out three four times. And uh, it was easy to adjust. It seems to hold at zero, and what I really like about it is I don't really care for the red dots. I really like the green dots. So you just you just keep flipping this this little dial, and it comes up green, and I really like that. And the only criticism I have of it is in very bright sun, you have to put it on max, and then it's not totally easy to see the red or the green dot. I mean, it, it doesn't pop like an aim point does. But then again, it's 
one-tenth the price so so there you go you know you can, you can kind of take that out as economy and for for a gun that's not being used for serious defense or anything it, I might shoot in a couple of pistol caliber carbine matches with it but I might not also but uh, it's a very very good piece of kit and it's nothing I would want to parachute into Syria with and fight ISIS but strictly for what I'm using it for it is a a very good piece of equipment it fits with the rifle. It's It just appears to be trouble-free. The uh, things I'm waiting on, though, are what is the battery life going to be? And, you know, that's the that's the, uh, the price you pay with the, uh, you know, the cheaper, um, the cheaper red dots is they, they don't have the, the kind of battery life that even an EOTech, which is not the greatest, but pretty good, or the aim point, which can last, you know, 10,000 hours or whatever it is. So, you know, you have to uh, you take the, uh, just accept that as a limitation, and uh, I'll tell you, though, I'm very pleased with it. I think it's a good little piece of equipment, and it's a kind of a piece of equipment that if they make a better one in two years, I don't feel like, uh, I've just spent, I've just spent, you know, a fortune on something that, that now is obsolete, and I want something better. So, I can always upgrade this probably with, uh, with very little, uh, very little guilt, the, the other nice part about it is that, uh, you know, it appears to be doing very well. Now, again, this is on a 9mm carbine with very little uh, recoil. I think you it would be more challenging to the sight to put it on something, a 5.56 and then a 308. I don't know that how well it would do on a on one where it actually feels recoil. But certainly for a 22 or... Or even the tiny nine millimeter, you know, the small, the nine millimeter carbine, which really doesn't uh, have much recoil, seems to be holding up. Seems to be reliable and durable enough, and holding up just fine. So that's really, uh, it's, it was very pleasing to me that to get a get something like that. The other piece of equipment that's very good are the, you know, the Bars, the cheap Barska AR scopes, ones that fit on the AR handle. I mean. They're they're basically the same quality as the originals, which weren't weren't exactly uh, the greatest, but you know for just a for giving you a scoped optical sight for not a lot of money on onto a an AR that you know uh, is not something that mount the ones with the of course the carry handles the older style you know that's that's really you mounted on that carry handle that's what you have to do and that is that is. Uh, these scopes do very well with that, much better than, I, than I've had with standard scopes trying to use them or, or anything else. So they, they are very, very well suited to that particular platform and really give you kind of a, a very nice upgrade, uh, especially to people who don't really want to use iron sights. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very, very good alternative for not a lot of money. Again, those things are, I think, 70 bucks, you know. Even if the thing died on me, I could care less. You know, I I would just sit there and uh, uh, maybe buy another one. I don't know. But, uh, you know, they last, and they seem to be a very reason, a reasonable cost, good quality piece of equipment. Uh, two other great pieces of um, kit that have come along are the Vortex Spotting Scope. Um you know, I've spent years and years. Well, I can tell you, I've had the same spotting scope since I was 17 years old, okay? And it's a Bushnell, a Bushnell 20 power. You know, and it's a good scope. It's, it's actually a very, very good scope. But it was never designed to look for 22 caliber or 30 caliber rifle holes at 300 yards or 300 meters. It's just not doing that it's it's great for a lot of other things but it's not great for that and unfortunately that's kind of what i need so what i've what i did was i got the uh, dime it's the is it the diamond back yeah i think it's the diamond back and um you know a beautiful piece of optical equipment beautiful and uh you know you really you kind of sit there and go why didn't i buy this earlier you know, because there always seems to be a competing requirement. You know, and, when, and to get a good spotting scope, you're going to spend three to four hundred dollars to get a decent one, which is the price range this is in. It's there's several, several different models. 
So you you but after you have this, you go, why did I spend all those years not having this? Why didn't I buy this for myself years ago? And you know, part of the reason is they weren't really that good years ago, and they've been getting better and better and better since, and they're really very good now. Another piece of equipment that I have high hopes for, because I haven't actually really used it yet except for playing with it, is called the Bog Death Grip, which is a large tripod that you can actually shoot off of, and um, you can you, know, you can you can do it everything from standing to prone. You know, it's got foldable legs and and all these other great great features, and. Uh, you know, mated with a precision rifle, it's going to be something very, very awesome. Very, very awesome. And for both hunting and or target use. And, uh, you know, if I were if I were in the tactical world still, I would, I would think that, uh, you know, having one of these, at least uh, access to one, could be very, very valuable for like a police SWAT team type of deal, you know, or perhaps, you know, certain... Certain special operations missions, this this something like this could come in very very handy, um, as a way to kind of stabilize and and uh, uh, providing a platform that you can shoot your uh, precision rifle from. So I really think that it's a uh, it's a great thing, and I'm actually looking very very much to using it, and uh, that's that's going to come here pretty soon. Hey, and uh, lastly. A couple of great uh, pieces of equipment I've gotten a hold of um, through Buffalo Arms Ammunition is the um, uh, Oklahoma Leather Company uh, holsters and belt. And they're very nice quality. They're reasonably priced. They're not fancy, but you know they're gonna they're gonna get the job done. I may I may do some wild bunch shooting, and these things are definitely gonna come in the hand come in handy. Plus, I just wanted, you know, a gun belt that if I go out into the forest or woods, I can wear, you know, the Buscadero gunfighter types are, are just, they're horrible to wear. You can't wear those things all day. Those, those are made for show. But uh, a good gun belt and a holster for a Western-style gun is really going to be a very, very helpful thing to have. And, uh, you know, it's very nice and comfortable to wear, and it supports the gun. Like I said, they're not fancy, but they're nice, and they're quality, so they're really good. That's it for this edition of Old School Guns, and as always, you can leave comments on Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.